Today we continue our Web3 style conversations where I believe it's really important for CTOs to consider what's coming down over that hill and may consume us one day or not. Today we have Scott Hoffman Wilson, Head of Engineering at Nori. They're doing interesting things in the carbon removal space using blockchain and NFTs. We also have Ben Howard from Connect Air who want to use NFTs to share rewards points across ecosystems from seven CTOs my name is Etienne de Bruin and you're in the CTO studio Seven CTOs is a global collective of CTOs helping each other become world-class leaders through our peer groups that meet once a month as well as one-on-one coaching and mentorship We carefully assemble our forums with seven like-minded people who are at similar and adjacent stages with their companies. They help each other solve challenges unique to technical leadership roles. Each forum gets assigned an executive coach who leads conversations of emotional support and growth as well as holds space for difficult conversations we need to have sometimes. Check out 7ctos.com. And apply today. Mention CTO Studio and get a free strategy session with yours truly. And I truly look forward to hearing from you. Sure. Yeah, it's great to meet you guys in person. I'm the head of engineering at a company called Nori based in Seattle. And what we're doing is we're building a marketplace for carbon removal. And we're doing that heavily based on Ethereum blockchain and trying to solve a bunch of problems with traditional carbon markets now. So I've been at this for about a year. A lot of this is new to me too, but I'm learning quickly. And so under the hood, Nori uses NFTs a fair bit to represent the different components in the marketplace. Okay. That sounds like a real world application that we can really talk about. Yeah. I'm Etienne, founder of 7CTOs. I am very interested in this movement we're seeing where NFTs seem to be at the heart of forming and creating communities. Then, of course, the Discord channel and the airdrops and I don't know what else people are doing. But so NFTs is that currency in and of itself or that asset that that gets people excited, loyalty, membership. I'm really interested in that. Scott, of course, you've hacked my brain a little bit now with what you guys are doing. I think maybe with that general banner, I'd love to just learn a little more about how Nori is doing its technology with, with NFTs in production and all that. Sure. Absolutely. I should preface it by saying we're not actually really doing community building. That's not the first priority of it, obviously, but we definitely want to get there too. That's a very obvious add-on that we'll create. Our farmers who are currently, or our suppliers who are currently American-based farmers who are doing regenerative agriculture, they're a pretty small group and we definitely are planning to build some community around them. In addition to all the crypto side people who are, the people who are most interested in purchasing the carbon removal and carbon offsets that we're selling in the marketplace. So under the hood, we're actually just in the middle of a big transition from layer one, which ground to a halt because of fees. We're moving everything on to a layer two. There are a couple of main components to what goes on under the hood at Nori. There's something that we call a, a removal NFT. And we're actually using the new 1155 spec, which allows you to have, it blurs the lines a little bit between an NFT and a regular ERC-20 token. But for a given field, in a given year, we run a computational model or a partner of ours runs a computational model to figure out an estimate of how much carbon this 
producer is going to sequester into their soil by changing their practices. We then grant them one of these removal NFTs with the number of tons of carbon dioxide coming out of the atmosphere as the amount on that NFT. There's then a marketplace contract that sort of orchestrates swapping between a buyer who comes in with our Nori ERC20 token and the supplier who is now selling this NFT that we've minted for them and listed in this marketplace contract for them. So all on chain, we swap Nori token, the ERC20 for these removal tokens. The removals get burned by the marketplace. Another certificate NFT gets handed back to the buyer and then everyone's happy. Everyone's paid and we're trying to solve climate change in the process. So fascinating. I'm a little stuck on the removal token is that a is that like a future where you're committed to doing something like you're committed to removing carbon from those are only being granted for past documented practice okay Okay. so okay we could go way deep into the weeds on that but we have rules around they have to have been making a change in their practice in the last handful of years and the removals are being granted today are being granted based on change they've already made don't quote me if I've got the details slightly correct here, but they're signing a 10-year contract with Nori and they're committing to maintain this practice and they'll get topped up with more of those removal NFTs as the 10 years go by and they continue to fulfill their commitments there. So I can understand this. The Your customer, your business removes carbon from the atmosphere or from then they get issued a, a removal token or a certificate or something. Yeah, they get in it, a removal token, exactly. Yeah. Then they will trade that for a Nori ERC-20 token. Yeah, so the removal has a quantity attached to it. And yeah, it gets listed into a mark, in our marketplace, and then it gets sold essentially for a Nori ERC-20 token. Okay, and, and that... Nori's goal at the end of the day is that what we're trying to do is trying to help establish some price discovery around the cost of carbon removal. And that's where the ERC-20 comes in, and that's where... In terms of how you have free floating asset that can lead now, real quick you mentioned burning of the token right you're burning the tokens as they're getting used up that's an interesting like that that's a pretty common use case that i've seen as of late where a lot of people assume that nfts once you own an nft it's yours forever it exists and, like nobody could touch it nobody could grab it but at the end of the day we, these are all smart contracts and so I've, one of the things i've noticed a lot of is this idea that a lot of nft smart contract writers are implementing the ability to burn the NFT, burn whichever individual NFT or group of NFTs that they want later on down the road. So if Gary V wants to do his little conference thing and he puts out an NFT for everybody to buy, it, because he says that it's no no good after two years, like the NFT burns and, and now you no longer have that NFT. So that's an interesting sure, piece yeah, right? yeah. Right, specific. And, yeah, and that's another very relevant real world reason why you want to burn these things, right? Like in the case of Nori, they want to burn them because what's supposed to be traded is the ERC-20, not these carbon removals. They're supposed to be traded once and then that's it, we're done. So we burn them. And on the other side, actually, the buyer gets the certificate. And that is actually what led to that thread in Slack the other day. But the certificate is explicit. It's a an NFT where you're explicitly not allowed to trade. You're not allowed to sell it or pass it on to anyone else. It's locked to your wallet permanently. And that's also trying to solve a problem that happens in traditional carbon markets where people offset their carbon, do a big press splash, and then they, they resell them off their books and then they've accomplished nothing at the point other than fancy accounting. 
So. Can I, so the burning of the NFT is, is an interesting web three thing for me. Uh, I just want to understand on the, do you mind digging into this Nori thing? Uh, okay. So why would a buyer purchase a, 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 a token in Nori? Um, like why would they want to transact in the marketplace? Yeah. So again, in super layman's terms. Someone removes carbon, they get issued a certificate, they, they then purchase a token or get issued a removal token that then gets traded for a Nori token that then gets traded on your marketplace. Is that? Can you say that? Say that one too. I get confused. Sorry. I, uh, I just represented the, the thousands of people. Yeah, I don't know. It's cool. It's, it's pretty so complicated. The carbon, rem the, the, there's a carbon removal. I guess there's a whole show we can do on carbon. Yeah. Someone does something to then earn a certificate. So they earn a removal. They earn a removal, which, which, is, which, which is their supply, which is the supply side of this marketplace. And then they can put that supply up for sale at marketplace. So that's that side. Okay. Now, just quickly, if I have, if it's tied to something I've done, how is that a supply? How is that trade? Well, that, yeah, that's one of the tricky things that you have to get your mind around with carbon markets and stuff. Like, these are voluntary markets, so the reason a buyer would come to this market and want to buy carbon removals is to offset their own carbon footprint. Like, <clears throat> I'm, I want to offset the flight that I've taken this year. I think I can break this down, and, and Scott, please tell me if I'm completely wrong. Your your open market is, hey, I, I'm reducing, I'm removing carbon from the atmosphere by proving that I'm removing carbon from the atmosphere. These tokens I'm then turning around selling in the marketplace so that I can get paid in order to have continue moving carbon from the atmosphere. And in their marketplace, the other Nori token is a certificate. It's a receipt basically from the person, say, Exxon or whoever, who buys the carbon removal token to pay the carbon remover essentially. And then they get a receipt that the, the actual removal token gets burned. They get a receipt and that helps them with their ESG score or whatever other thing. Yeah. I, I should talk more about voluntary current markets when I got Actually, this. it's totally my fault. I've just made a commitment to myself that if I don't understand something, I'm just going to keep being that guy. No, it's great. It's my, my scientific <laughs> ego would have been, what do they think of me for asking all these dumb questions? But I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm too old to, to worry about that. Okay. So. Cool. Carbon uh, credits is then something I purchase because I'm not literally sucking it out of the atmosphere. So I purchase it that funds the, the, the actual removal and therefore I can feel good or I can be regulated or I can prove something because I am essentially funding the overall carbon removal from the atmosphere. Exactly. You're putting it out and you're paying someone else to take it. Got it. You're putting it up and you're paying someone else to bring it back down again. Brilliant. Thank you. Nailed it. Okay. It's an interesting thing diving into the, the, the mechanics of how these NFTs a lot of times work. I know now that we talked about a little bit about like that whole concept of issuing out an NFT, but then being able to burn an NFT, you can start seeing where a lot of these are applicable, right? Like you mentioned yourself that your receipt token is not tradable. It's non, but there's no trading involved. Like you, it's, it's in your wallet and it's in your wallet in perpetuity. Yeah. And, so, and, you, and you have, I'll give you an example, the ticket ecosystem, right? You have in the ticket ticketing ecosystem, two trains of thought. One train of thought is, hey, I got a ticket to Metallica or whatever the case is in NFT. 
I'm going to keep it in my wallet and I want to be able to sell that ticket in the future. But you also have the use case where the actual companies are coming out with this use case to prevent scalping. They don't want you to sell the ticket in the future so that you don't buy the ticket and then try to resell it in a secondary market. So here you have two different use cases within the same ecosystem trying to use the same ecosystem. Multiple companies are in these two spaces. And then on the one hand, you have the guys who think, okay, we, 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 the ticket is yours. You can't resell it. You can't do anything else with it except attend the concert. Then you have the other side that say, hey, uh, we want to basically be able to issue tickets and let people resell them both before and after and that sort of thing. And so, and so how you design your smart contract for those particular tickets for that particular set of NFTs is really the business model. Do you design your smart contract to allow people to purchase but not transfer the tickets until after the concert happens? And after the concert happens, you've prevented scalping, but then people are allowed to then sell it as a tradable good, that sort of thing. These are all technical things that you have to bake into your smart contract if you're wanting to get into this space and designing these sort of these sort of things. But all fit extremely well, right? This is very much a black canvas and you can cobble together any set of rules you want really to control who does what with those tickets. Yeah, it's really cool, actually. Okay. The the NFT, which is the, oh, I framed my ticket of when I went to Woodstock and it's valued at 10 grand and that kind of thinking. But now the burning of the NFT as a, you used it, it got chopped, it's done, it's the values, take, taken it out of the box, it's not valuable anymore, but it, it served its purpose. Is that, so there's those two categories. And to Scott's point, when I burn an NFT in its work contract, I could turn around and reissue another one. So in the case of Scott's thing, he's burning an NFT, but then turning around and reissuing another one that's a basic receipt as a proof that you've been there and that sort of thing. But those, that's basically the, how these, these things sort of work. Yeah, and that, that receipt still has a paper trail linking back to the removal that was burned. And it's not that the removal is gone, but it's no longer usable. So in the Nuri marketplace, and I promise we'll get to memberships and stuff, in the Nuri marketplace, the burning of the NFT is basically that moment the removal token turns into the Nuri currency. It's turned into a receipt, a certificate, NFT. The currency that's being used to pay for the transaction is a Nori ERC-20 token as well. So there are actually three tokens running around. Okay, got it. Okay. How did you get into this stuff, Scott? I discovered Nori a year ago. They've been going for a few years prior to that. And I was just excited to mix. It's an exciting stage of a company. It's a 50, or it was 15-ish strong when I joined. It's a fun stage to be able to lead the engineering side of things. And yeah, I care about the climate and I was interested in blockchain so it's been a fun ride so far yeah there is it's interesting as a startup because they're pushing the boundaries in several different directions at once kiss me on my toes is it safe to assume for someone like me that you're then on the ethereum blockchain or is is that also different where you're on something Um, else yeah and ethereum based we're actually moving to hosting things on polygon because it's far cheaper and for stuff like these nfts that aren't of extreme value, Polygon is well safe enough. So we hit the wall with, there's a lot of gas costs on the mainnet involved in meeting and burning all these NFTs and we cut the wall up being able to pay for the gas fees there, so. For context, mainnet is Ethereum's production for deploying and so forth. So. Excited to see the, the conversation and when I was just a, a listener hearing your explanation of being able to need to contract and then either burn it or keep it 
in the case of ticket scalping, it was really interesting for us at ConnectAir. We want to do some loyalty programs that are NFT-based, where we actively want to encourage the, the direction where people can resell that in the future. So imagine your airline loyalty points. If you fly with United or whatever today, you're basically trapped there. But for us, we see it as a lot more valuable to be able to to give or sell your airline points to somebody or sell your premier platinum status as your, your travel needs change. And we're happy to, we're sad to see that the, the good customer leave, uh, but happy to get somebody else on board who's going to continue to use that loyalty program that we wanted it to be. Portland, Oregon based and Connect Air. So we're doing a air taxi service is the best way to think about it. Small aircraft doing 100 mile, maybe 500 mile flights. We're currently going to market with uh, conventional aircraft and then working with a bunch of the electric and hybrid manufacturers to put their, their aircraft into service as soon as they're ready to go. Um, CTO there. Let's shift this uh, to this idea of using NFTs as a way to foster community, build memberships. What are all of yours experiences? And, and I guess DAOs also play a role in this because I feel like a DAO uses this as a key way to attract people. But let's have a couple thoughts. And so with the NFT as a membership model, what I find has been really interesting about that approach is this idea that your customer has paid enough into the ecosystem ahead of time for both access. So we're using the NFT as an like an OAuth token base. So you can't access it without that NFT. You, you got to go and buy one of those NFTs off of the OpenSea marketplace if one of those NFT holders has put it up there for sale in order to get access to the platform. But that has driven to the platform to say, okay, what is it that you guys want us to build? Not necessarily what we want to build. And so we're building. Like every week we're putting something out new, like whether it's real-time, uh, real-time analytics on floor pricing of other NFTs, collections, all this other stuff. We're putting it out there as fast as we possibly can, and it's getting excitement. And I mean, we put we, we initially put some stuff out there ahead of time without the login, just so people can get a feel for it, see if they like it, see if they enjoy it with the caveat that hey, this is going behind the firewall. It's up. So if you want it long term, go, go go buy the NFT. That's sort of so that has been a really interesting use case. Prior to this, I didn't really see that much of a use case. You, you and I, Tian, have talked about this before. I haven't really seen too much of a use case for NFTs, but now that I'm in the ecosystem and getting my hands dirty, it's been really interesting to get familiar. Yeah, and I'd agree. I, I drugged my feet early on. Um, I was like, why should we do the whole blockchain-based tracking and things like that? It's a lot of extra work on our part for what's a loyalty program, right? Everybody else tracks in the database, why not us? Um, and for me, really, what changed my mind was that idea that the the customer actually owns it, right? Of like, it's theirs and they can take it and they can sell it or gift it or, or do what they want to do with it. And it's it's purposefully outside of our control there, right? That like right now you use Alaska or United Points at, at their pleasure. And if they change their pricing structure or they don't want to let you buy somebody else a ticket with or whatever, that's it. And for us, our, our whole goal is to open the skies to, to more people. And we're trying to live that all the way through. Are either of you building community sort of matching people together on those platforms? I happen to be looking at Fraction.art. I'm sure you're aware of that one, Michael, for both of you. So they are really leaning heavily on the Discord MetaMask connection where you can, you know, you on that platform, you put an NFT into a vault and then people buy fractions of it. And then if you own a fraction, you can get into the right Discord channel and talk to your friends, your co-owners, I guess, basically. 
Yeah, we've just spun up our, our Discord channel, and I think we've got 100-something-odd people in there. And yeah, definitely looking at it on the community side. We've talked about how to do some of that community ex- exchange. A, a big problem in current charter flying right now is the anti-aircraft problem. So right now, if you fly from A to B, then aircraft has to get back home again, and or the pilot does. And so what ends up happening is you fly the aircraft and pilot home with no passengers in the back. And so you're doubling the footprint, carbon footprint of that aircraft effectively. If we can have paying passengers coming the other direction and not exactly B back to A, but any combination gets the aircraft closer to home is good for us. That that ends up being better for everyone. And so if we could come up with an exchange token where you can say, hey, I put in this much supply, this many seats on an aircraft or something like that. And somebody else can take that token at the other side and and pay for a flight, basically keeping all of the seats full all the time. The problem we had was coming up with a, an exchange that was fair, that a, a cargo aircraft may have six seats on it, and that's not the same as the nice six leather seats on, on some other aircraft. And so it, how do you say, I, I put in this much supply and I took out that much supply, and it was fair. And we haven't come up with a good way to do that yet, but we'd love to. So is that, I might have had a bit of a brain thing right now. Is that, considering what Scott said earlier, would I then typically be able to purchase that empty seat on the cargo plane to effectively reduce the footprint in a freight, but then in return, I'm able to then earn a seat on a real plane when I have to go somewhere? Is that what we're talking about? This would be, so the, the problem right now is that all of the charter operators are are basically one, two, three, four, five aircraft mom and pop shops. And so they never have a bit network big enough to to, suplu- to smooth out their supply and demand problems. It, it's always lockstep, like jerking back and forth. And they're all competitive with each other. If they do a flight, they don't want to let somebody else take that return leg, even though the other person really needs the aircraft in the other place. And so they're because they're all competitive with each other, they don't they don't share resources. They don't pool their supply side to smooth it back out again. And so for us coming up with a with a way to to get them to see the world less zero sum ultimately helps all of us if they're burning less fuel with with empty aircraft in it. And so the trick for us is coming up with a, an exchange rate basically between seats in an aircraft or the experience or something like that 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 helps helps company A move an aircraft for company B that they wouldn't have to otherwise and, and make sure that the seats are full when it happens. The tension between or I perceive it as the tension between your sort of centralized company determining exchange rates versus letting some decentralized mechanism figure it out really resonates too. Uh, We face that in Nori in the sense that not every carbon removal technology is as permanent in terms of the number of years it'll stay on the ground or as high quality. And we definitely wrestle with that, whether we want to try to commoditize everything and treat it all equal or whether we get into the business of saying this is a reform that. And we're definitely leading towards the commoditized direction versus the imposing exchange rates, but it's a tricky problem for sure. I think we may get around it by granting like completely different methodologies like direct air capture, which are far demonstrably far more permanent. We may just give them more NFTs on a very simple air scale or something. But yeah, a very interesting t- tension with all of these attempts to decentralize things like this. You mentioned it's just a second ago is the the plumbing around a bunch of these things is tough too, right? That like the current space isn't very user-friendly. Like by the time you've installed MetaMask and done all these other things to like make a wallet and make sure you haven't lost it and, and that kind of stuff, we, at least as Connect Air, really need some help on that plumbing side of things to make sure that the tools for our base class of users can can get into it and, and do it easily. 
uh, without having to be a whole crypto setup. And so for us, actively stimulating development in places where we think it's interesting to, to help some of those tools go forward, make them more accessible, go from 1990s internet to, to 2000s internet. Yeah, I definitely think that there is an issue around specific people like you by by defining you, you're selling an NFT for membership, you are defining your customer base as those who know how to set up MetaMask, have have the the ability or capability and understand how to purchase that an NFT from you, either through OpenSea or whatever platform you end up putting it on. And so you're already limiting buying who your members are going to be from a technical perspective. Because Grandma's not going to do. Grandma's not going to buy. Crypto punk, the crypto punk. She's not gonna, she's not gonna get a monkey and get access to Snoop Dogg and that sort of thing, right? So at the end of the day, you are by definition entering this space, knowing that you're going to be limiting your customer base for at least these particular features in a, in a significant enough way. And so, so it may take 10 years before everybody's on, everybody's got their metamask and everybody's on the, these systems themselves, just like it took 10 years for everybody to be on Facebook and all this other stuff. The question becomes, what benefit do you get from having that sort of more tech-savvy member in your ecosystem versus what benefit? Like, it's going to skew the, the tech and the things that you build and the priorities towards that segment of the population. And so whatever you're building, it makes the most sense to understand that you're going to limit your market uh, if you go down that membership road. Yeah, and that's we've had that discussion internally, right? Of what is this? What is the selection bias we're putting on going that direction? And to that end, uh, we've set it up so that you can buy the same loyalty, but then closer to cash kind of route. Where it's we're going to do a crowdfunding rate round coming up here, and you'll be able to buy into the same loyalty tiers, but swiping your credit card kind of style. But yeah, that I think long term we're going to have to be smart about how we listen to that community, that understanding that they're a very technical community in, in general, it's going to be easy to get sucked into building a monument to computer science, where we're basically, they're going to say, hell, it wouldn't be great if we had this and this. And we're like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of users who really think they know what they're doing. And so let's go do it. And we'll forget about or stop listening to Joe off the street who just wants to check and say, hey, can I do a flight from A to B? And so we'll have to be careful about getting sucked into to listening to them exclusively, I think. My hope is that a lot of this complexity is going to fade into the background somewhat. It wasn't easy to use Web 1 or Web 2 at the beginning. Right, right. And I think to some extent we're banking on the fact that people are going to take care of that complexity and we're going to end up with it a little more papered over and a little easier to hide for the people who don't want to engage with it. We have the same problem. I don't worry. We have lots of people who are just not interested or don't want to necessarily engage with the technical crypto side of it, but they definitely do want to engage with what we're building as a product and something we're actively trying to figure out too. And we do support cash sales as well. It's a bunch of extra complexity. I'd love it if we didn't have to, but we started there and we have to continue to do that. Ben, I was very inspired by what you said in terms of the fierce competition in those little, in your marketplace, the mom and pop cargo plane shops. And I, I could see how the trustless, tradable thing could actually equal things out for all this heavy competitive environment where it's, I actually, there's actually value for me now in trading out my empty seats or my, I actually felt, wow, that is one of the first times where I can see how a trustless, it's not so much your little ecosystem and your CRM and your sales team and your customers 
and you're like fiercely building out your little thing, you're actually, you can actually combine and merge ecosystems because there's this tradable thing between this fierce competition. I really see that. Am I right on that? Spot on. Okay. We see this as one of the places where it's a clear open source project, where it's something that's good for the whole community. And and yeah, we'll be a heavy user of it, but it it ends up being so good for everyone that that we absolutely want to push that out publicly. Again, if we can figure out the the exchange rate or how that should work in a way that we're we're figuring out a way to let people find their own exchange rate between between yes, and and because I'm thinking now, wow, it's such a clear picture for me how the empty seats in a in a plane is. Wow, that I'm I'm going to write something about that because. Technically, and, and again, with Scott's carbon removal certificate trading, if I can't remove the carbon myself, I'm just going to purchase a carbon removal credit that funds someone else doing it. Mm-hmm. And what better way to do that on a global scale if I don't care about my little ecosystem and my little tr- trading mechanism, right? Is, is what I'm feeling super inspired. So I'm going to use a lot of words. Okay. So now... I want to bring it back to this confusion I feel about membership organizations and using NFT, which again is something that you can trade out. I don't understand. Isn't a membership and a community the antithesis of that? Where it's, no, I want my own ecosystem. I don't want people trading their memberships or selling their access. I want to create a a closed slash open slash closed slash exclusive ecosystem. So how do those two things play? So me and I have had this discussion on the drive after Round Rock at one point. We were having, she didn't like, she saw from a perspective of, if I have people wanting to become a member of my platform, why don't I just sell them more membership? Why do I have to limit the number of memberships to my platform? Say I Say I do a drop of a thousand NFTs, but more than a thousand people want to access that platform. Why would I not just drop another set of NFTs and limit the total number of memberships? And there is a legitimate question, right? If I'm building a platform and I want to get as many users as possible, right? I want to build a Facebook. I want to get to a billion people and I want to just get as many users as possible. Why would I limit the total number of people that, that are accessing and have access to that membership? I think the model exists, and it really depends on what you're building, where some things do don't scale, right? So like some things don't scale all that. And those things that don't scale all that well, and you're trying to build something to create value, yeah, you're limiting the, the total number of people to say 10,000 crypto parts, and, and there can be no more than, than those 10,000 crypto. But you're creating value in the sense that the more you add, because as people are selling those NFTs as a company, you're making money as well, right? Like you're making a cut of every one of those sales. As people, and if they're selling it for more than they what they paid for it, they're making their money back plus them if they don't want to be in the ecosystem anymore. But the ecosystem is is hot, and so it almost creates like this virtuous like where your goal as a, as an organization and having that limited membership is to make those that membership so valuable, just so utterly valuable. Like the, the tools that you're building, the things that the interactions, the people that you're bringing on board becomes just so valuable. That you're, that people are gonna want to pay way more than the original owners did. It is the first time in the digital sense that we've been able to create digital scarcity. And with digital scarcity, what does that give us? What, what can you do with digital scarcity? And what we're seeing right now, we're seeing right now with the whole Gary Vee thing. Like if you want, if you buy Gary Vee's NFT, it's expensive, but you can have a dinner with the guy. 
have a chat of them if you want to, that sort of thing, right? Like something that you can even buy in most cases without a, a significant amount of money. But because he wants to improve his platform, because he wants to improve his system, he wants there to be real value behind it. He's added all of these additional things that weren't in there when the, when the NFT first dragged, because he wants to make that thing more valuable long term. And so that's where you see the board apes and all this other stuff becoming so popular with celebrities and everything else is because these guys are adamantly trying to make their communities more and more valuable so that the NFT, the membership, becomes ultimately more and more valuable down the road. Yeah. So questions. If I sell that NFT is tradable, correct? So can I, so I can buy and sell my membership. So presumably the owner of that community doesn't care who's in it as long as the price is right. Some will, right? You'll have attrition. Some will look like, just like you'll have attrition with credit card processing. Some will just stop paying the credit card processing on the membership side, and then you'll just not have them as a member. But in this case, the idea is like those that were just going to attrition anyway, that are going to move off the platform anyway, they get to turn around and resell those NFT for, to somebody else who really wants that membership and couldn't get it without them. So technically speaking, when I have my Discord and I have my NFT, if I trade my NFT to someone else, on they, they buy it on OpenSea or something, I'm assuming, do I lose my Discord access? There's a service that kills it. Is, it a, is that the big thing? There's a link? Yeah. You, you might still have access to the Discord, but you won't have access to chat channel. Here's a question. Can you make the NFT non-tradable so that you, if you buy it, you have it, but you can't sell it? That's yours. Yes. And you can set up the NFTs to pay you royalty when they're bought and sold. So you, as that community turns over, you're making some money over that exchange happening too. So you, you can set up the royalties as part of that smart contract getting exchanged. I, I can see Ben's use case play out really well with the great equalizer between rewards points and not being, not being locked in someone's ecosystem. I definitely see that. I, I realize the NFT gives you access to the Discord API. Great. That's interesting. So do DAOs come into play here as well then? Is, 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 again, if we're talking about memberships and participation and exclusivity and levels of value, is the general, I want to start a community in Web3 technologies. Generally, I create my DAO and then I make name my currency and then I do an airdrop of NFTs and then everyone's on Discord and now it's a dog and pony show to make sure that there's enough value. Is that an accurate summary? I would say that adding DAOs to the mix is like the next level, right? It's like adding more icing on, on the cake. You can do this with simple NFTs. One thing that a DAO would let you do is to bring back the vetting that a community might sometimes do to allow a new member in, right? Like now you could have the DAO vote to allow someone to trade their NFT to this guy and you could vet that guy and have a whole motion where everyone had to agree before that could change hands, which I think is pretty interesting. But DAOs are definitely not a prerequisite to doing all of this stuff. In our previous conversation about DAOs, I remember we talked about this idea of DAOs, NFTs, tokens as design patterns, right? And so when you think of it from that perspective, yeah, you could always introduce that design pattern later on down the road. It may not be able to be introduced in the same contract, right? So you might start with an NFT contract and you might create a, a DAO contract that's dependent on that original NFT contract for voting rights and for all this other. But you can start seeing how these things piecemeal together. I think with the project they're helping out with right now, like they've started with before they even had an NFT contract, 
They just started letting people sign up for, for it ahead of time and pay for it ahead of time. And when the drop happened, they issued all of those particular wallets there that could have feet. And that helped tremendously with the funding. So, so you start with not having smart contract, not having just people paying into the ecosystem beforehand. Then once the NFT drop, like you issue those particular wallets to those particular people, and then they can start going out and selling that NFT yeah. if they want to on their platform and so forth. And then after that, maybe you, and we've talked about this, maybe we introduce a DAO or something like that uh, to help with the voting thing that I mentioned. Yeah. To allow people to, because a lot of that stuff is done on the Web2 side of the house. But maybe at some point we move that over to the Web3 center house. I'm still, I'd say, pretty new to the whole space. Actually, as an old school C programmer, I'd have to say that the contract coding itself is actually super cool. They're doing a bunch of really old school programming tricks to save processing power, to save the storage space and things like that. That like stuff that we we stopped doing 10 years ago because memory and hard drives were cheap. But that's all come back. But as far as like the actual community side of things. I'm really jumping back in and, and learning a lot there. My dilemma on this all is I actually run a real world community with real people that know each other. And we, a lot of our stuff is in person, but we have a, a fairly prolific engagement virtually. And so I don't know if I'm trying to back into a problem that I don't actually have. So don't try and solve it. You know, I don't have, or Am I missing out on a really cool, you can get the little beer glass and the little badge in the mail if you purchase this NFT, or you can access this Slack channel if, I don't know, just stuff like that, that I just am wrestling with. I think to Michael's point, you can do it incrementally, right? Like you could just go and issue an NFT to all of your current users, just mint it. It may not be worth anything today, but... Really, it's worth. You know, I'm Isn't that all in it? All any other NFTs worth bragging rights at the end of the day? You could just go and issue them and build from there. See what happens. And maybe if you did want to start to allow people to buy their membership that way, like maybe at some point in the future, you pivot to the membership fee being driven off of the NFT. Then I wanted to come back to your comment about the C programming. One of the engineers on my team posted a meme about why, when I change the parameter order of my function and solidity, does it cost more or less gas? And I was like, dude, Wordle unmet. I learned that. It's cool, but you're all too young to learn that. Yeah, that I I remember growing up, my dad was always on my case, get to figure out how to pack more into your structure so that you've got all your bits. This I use two bits for that, and three bits for this, and six bits for that, and then. It, 2010, you're like, why would I do that? RAM's cheap. Just dump it up there and save the processing power throw a few more cores at it or something. And now that we're back to that again, um, reading through somebody else's code, I was like, wow, this is what I did at Intel, like bare metal programming, trying to figure out how do I pack everything into the size that I've got and crunch this with as little horsepower as I possibly can because it's expensive again. I, I love that so much. I'll never forget when, because I'm also old school C and I'll never forget just the meticulous way in which we were packing packets into TCP packets to really just get it. And then when I realized one day people are just dumping JSON arrays, like, like the HTTP layer, of course, is just <laughs> a mess. You just send anything. And I was just remembering that exact same feeling of how we were so conscious about building that struct that would just align everything perfectly. And then you have a JSON array, which is just like, no one cares what's on it. You know? <laughs> yeah, 80% anyway, isn't there? Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
It's funny. It's just, I guess it shows it shows how young I am. I haven't touched really see it at fundamental level since college. As an app developer, there's libraries to optimize you at deployment time, like really optimize your smart contract at deployment time. So I didn't even think about that kind of stuff. I'm looking at contracts and stuff like that anymore. Obviously, you want to you want to optimize it as best as possible. But there's a lot of guys in the space right now already from a fundamental level per se. That was. That was my experience at Intel, um, using like the Intel compiler versus the Microsoft compiler versus writing yourself, uh, machine code. The, the Intel compiler on the right hardware was substantially better at, at optimizing. Smart people were hard at it, but there were special things where you could go in and by hand, make it a fair bit more, more efficient for that inner loop, like that first first for loop that's just cranking away, doing whatever it is on the inside. That's where doing it by hand. You could play things in a different order a little bit. That's where it scales really hard. So at that, at the, look, I just want to deploy something level. The optimizers do a pretty decent job, but if you're going to do something that, that scales really hard, um, I think that's where it's worth taking a look to, to fiddle with something like that iter for loop, basically. Okay. This was great. I love it. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, team. Yeah. And thanks for having us together in Portland in person, like three years ago or something, something like that. Would you that familiar to me? Yeah. Okay, team. Okay. Take care. Yep. See you guys. Thanks, okay. Michael. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of CTO Studio. This is a little taste of the many conversations we have inside Seven CTOs. In addition to our peer groups, Seven CTOs members are also part of Slack, where ad hoc issues can be addressed by the larger collective. We also have one to two Zoom calls a week where we go deep on specific challenges like brand new technologies, hiring strategies, people management, and expanding our influence and branding as technology leaders. Also check out 7CTOs.com where we publish our list of events like upcoming retreats and colloquiums in a city near you. Applications are always open, so mention CTO Studio when you apply and you'll get a free strategy session with me. Wouldn't that be fun? See you next week.